When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Everybody's building the big ships and the boats. Some are building monuments, others jotting down notes. Everybody's in despair, every girl and boy. But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody's going to jump for joy. Come all without, come all within. You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. This is Pod Dylan, the two that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about Quinn the Eskimo, a.k.a. the Mighty Quinn, one of the most famous Dylan slash non-Dylan songs of all time, is musician Chris Bloomfield. Hi, Chris. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Oh, man. Now, now you are in, if you don't mind me saying, you are in Cyprus. Is that correct? That's right. That's that right. is amazing uh, to me. <laughs> you, you've got fans all over the world. That is, um, well, Bob has fans all over the world, but, but uh, I mean, if you may, if you don't mind me asking, how does one end up living in Cyprus? Because you're, that's, you're not, that's not, you weren't born there, right? That's right. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, wow. Along, and so real quick version. Uh, so my, my wife is from here and we met in Greece. We co-founded a uh, bookstore uh, on the island of Santorini called Atlantis Books. Um, and it's relevant for this conversation because uh, it'll lead into the sort of how did I get into Dylan? Uh, because um, the guy who had the original idea is my best friend from home. Uh, this guy uh, called Craig Walzer, who um, uh, I, I listened to it a lot, but I'll, I'll get into that in a second. <laughs> so my wife and I, she wasn't my wife then, we co-founded this bookstore and then um, some time passed and we realized that we were uh, a bit more than friends and we decided to, to, to make a go of it. And That's so amazing. she moved to California. Yeah, well, uh, she moved to California for a bit, and then we decided after we had kids that um, we wanted to be um, here in Cyprus. She's got some family here still, and uh, she really missed it, and I really like it here as well. So here we are. Wow! <laughs> wow, man, Memphis, Tennessee to Cyprus. That's uh, that's right. That is quite the journey. I did a little research on Cyprus after we talked about doing the show, and uh, I don't know. It looks like a pretty cool place. It's very pretty. My, my um, stepmom and dad are here for the week. I'm actually uh, in their uh, Airbnb doing this because the kids would want to interrupt the whole thing. Um, but they've, uh, they've had a really good time because it's very pretty. The people are all very friendly. The food is great. And, um, you know, the beaches are lovely. And it's a, it's a really great place. Is, it, is there a lot of people? I guess that's a relative term. But, I mean, you know, compared to the landmass, how, how, many, how many people are in Cyprus? Uh, I think uh, the official count last I remember checking is 1.2 million, but there's, uh, you know, th- there's um, some political, I wouldn't quite call it turmoil because the proper turmoil happened in the, in the seventies. Um, but the Northern third of the Island is um, run by the, uh, by, by Turkey. And so it's unclear how many total there are because the numbers from there are not necessarily, counted in the same way. I'm not totally sure. Um, I might even be uh, sticking my foot in my mouth here, but we'll call it 1.2. Wow. Okay. I, I said it, I, I did a whole bunch of reading on it. It just looked like a fascinating 
kind of place to go and live. And uh, I've mentioned in other episodes, my fiance and I are always, we're kind of gunning to leave New Jersey. We've been here forever. And so I'm not saying Cyprus is on the list, but it looked interesting. I showed her to her when like, when, when, uh, when we closed deal on the episode. I was like, check this out, baby. Look, Cyprus looks kind of interesting. It's so, pretty. My, uh, my son, Jonah, he calls it the belly button of the world, um, <laughs> which, you know, it, it, it works. Yeah, it's you know, it's important to life itself as the uh, the navel. So exactly. I guess it's kind of a good thing. So all right, well you said it, the, the, your your meeting, uh, your ending up in Cyprus leads to the story of how you became a fan. So how'd you become a fan? Okay, so um, so my my parents were born in uh forty nine and fifty one respectively. So like they they you know the Doors and the Beatles and the Stones and the Almond Brothers that it's all around at all times but they were never really super into Dylan uh, but I went to um, summer camp as a as a, like a ten eleven and twelve year old or maybe nine ten eleven and anybody that goes to a Jewish summer camp has some sing-alongs on Friday night and and Saturday night and you're bound to have blowing in the wind um, <laughs> no matter what so like I I knew of his existence um, but it wasn't until this friend Craig and I um, in, in high school, we were often driving around and, and, and Blood on the Tracks was one of the CDs that he took from his dad. And specifically, uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, we would just listen to over and over in this cherry red Jeep Wrangler with the top down. And, <laughs> oh, um, you know, that's, that's uh, awesome. and, and exactly. And that's the song that really, you know, gets a teenager going on that album. Uh, I mean, Shelter from the Storm is still, you know, my, my gem in that crown, but this is what you know, uh, I couldn't really tell Craig how, how that song was making me feel because we were, you know, 16, 17 and you didn't really too, get too much into the lovey-dovey talk with your buddy then. Um, but we could talk about Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And, um, and so, uh, and then, okay, so in, in, I was into it, I was into that, um, but then I, I got into uh, the band Fish um, with a bunch of my high school buddies and at, I went to Indiana university and they have a really great music department. And I took, uh, this history of rock and roll class, um, which was taught by this professor gas. And he was wonderful. It really turned me on to a bunch of stuff, a whole class on, uh, the beach boys, um, and, and just kind of changes the way you think of things. But Dylan just kept coming up, up over and over and over again. And when it got to the part about his first, you know, meeting with the Beatles, who I was also very into, um, I was like, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta pay more attention to this, this Dylan fellow. And, uh, and so that's kind of when it sort of started. And then I, I, I've, I've really been in this, this kind of phase for like 10 years now. It's not even a phase anymore. It's troublesome. <laughs> At what point is I, it stop being a phase? Yeah, it, exactly. But like now, like for the last like three or four years, I can't really listen to anything else. Like I'll put like, there's a new Wilco album out. I love Wilco. I listen to one or two songs and I'm like, well, I just would rather listen to the, you know, <laughs> the most recent, you know, bootleg series that's just come out and that, you know, I have already listened to plenty, but why not just listen to that? And it's the same with reading books. Like, why not just read another Dylan book instead of, you know, this book of, you know, Murakami short stories. And so I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's actually quite troublesome. <laughs> I, need to break, I need to break out of it. <laughs> he's, he's just taking over. He's just getting you all know, the tendrils of Bob and reaching into your brain and just exactly. crowding everything else out. Yeah, it can. I caught myself not that long ago, like, God, when's the last non Dylan CD I bought or you know, full album? Like, my God, that was, you know, 10 years ago or something. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, that's probably not super great. <laughs> so, well, because there, there's lots of good stuff out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. But I really got turned on to the Mighty Quinn. So I saw a fish 
in uh, 2010, the first of a three-night um, run at Madison Square Garden. Um, and they, it was the fourth song in the first set. And when, when that happens, uh, they played it like, I think, 38, 39 times. And when it, ha- but when it happens in the first set, you know it's going to be a killer show. Um, and they really kind of lean into the, you know, everybody's going to want to dose and they, the crowd, <laughs> the, the crowd kind of gets into it. And, and I, I remember that. And I remember really liking that and getting into the song then, and then kind of took a backseat to some other things. And, um, since, uh, emailing back and forth with you, I kind of did another big deep dive and, and got really into several of the other versions that are around. Um, but ultimately back to the, uh, the Isle of Wight on the greatest hits album, which I also remember thinking like, greatest hits really you know what and then he does that in the same you know it's the same guy that does you know traveling wilburys volume three sort of thing. right um and i just i think that's great now so you have you seen him have you seen bob Bly? all right this is another quick short story <laughs> so my friend hal tobin says to me for your 21st birthday chris i will get you either a ticket to see bob dylan coming to indiana or uh this other jam band called the string cheese incident and at that point, people were saying that uh, this is in 2000, 2001, or maybe 2001 or 2002. Uh, Dylan was really hit or miss. You could get a really good show. You could get a really bad show, but it's probably statistically going to be a bad show. And I was like, well, I know I'm going to get a good show with string cheese. And so I turned down the Bob Dylan ticket. It's brave of you Much to say on this show, Chris. I appreciate it. I know. I know. I, I, I admit my failures. Um, <laughs> but so I haven't had a chance. I tried to talk my parents, uh, who, who live in Memphis into going to see him cause he was just there recently. But, uh, my dad saw him, um, uh, in the, I think in the sixties and I think once or twice in the seventies. And, and although he wasn't really super into him, but he, you know, he would go to concerts and he was just like, ah, I don't need to see that anymore. Hmm. So I have not seen Dylan. Okay. I, I don't think he's ever played Cyprus. I, I mean, I'm not, no. I don't have this stuff memorized but i can't think of a, a you know a bootleg where it's oh live from cyprus or anything like that so no since uh i mean I, we got here the summer of 19 so we had about six months of normalcy before covid hit. oh right uh, okay but, but gotcha. i keep but i keep searching like bands that i like um who are going to do european tours and of course bob has a he's he's going to do a european tour now yep. where, where does, usually that leads to germany france and the uk maybe to you know a, a random other country like portugal or Something like that, but not not here. So maybe I'll have to get off the island to go see him. What would be geographically like? What would be the nearest concert hall that like a major act would would come through for you to potentially go see see well, anybody? You know, let's not knock Cyprus here. I think Celine Dion is still supposed to come. She was delayed from COVID, and the Scorpions are coming back here. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think they always Athens, deliver a solid show. The Scorpions, we know that for they sure. They do. Um, Athens. Um, or if anyone's uh, going to play in Tel Aviv, I mean, you, you um, I think, wait in line for security longer than the flight to Israel takes. Um, but probably it's the case that Athens would be the closest. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I know he's played there. I know Bob has yes. played there. So, okay. And there's so, that so famous uh, video of him with uh, Van Morrison. Right. You know, so maybe they'll... they'll reprise that right so i was just sort of curious like if he did swing by that part of the the world what kind of effort would you need to make to go see him because you know for some just people a it's flights. a real haul just a couple flights and to you know convince my wife that it's worth spending money on but, well it absolutely is i mean come on we know that um I, all right I, I, 
All right. So I, one other question. I'm sorry. I'm really fascinated about you living in Cyprus. I don't mean to turn this into a sure. you know travel podcast, but um, again, and forgive my ignorance about this question, but but like so when something comes out, like say Rough and Rowdy Ways, right, comes out yeah. June twentieth on compact disc and on vinyl or whatever, right? Are is Cyprus going to get that stuff same day as the rest of the world, or is there because it is so far away from where this stuff is literally being made that like there's a there's a lag or is it do you guys get stuff same day like you know any other country would run an american product so you know i i haven't bought music here um but i mean really what i could tell and, and this is when i was living in greece it was the same sort of thing is about movies um, and when those are released. And at this point, uh, movies are released here in a similar time frame than everywhere else. Okay. Um, this is a former British colony, so they're going to get things around the same time or the same time that it's going to happen in the UK. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, I, I guess if, if I was going to hunt for the vinyl, I, I probably would have asked or pre-ordered it from the UK just to make sure. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, because I'm always just sort of fascinated about, like, you know, because obviously, uh, if, if it's going to travel that far, they have to have it already shipped and right. waiting. You know, it's not like everybody could ship things same day or whatever. So, okay. Right. All right. But the, the, there are some benefits. Like when like I was in my bed, it was around midnight when, um, when all of a sudden I see that uh, Murder Most Foul exists. Ah. And I, I, I was awake for it. And this podcast that I am lucky to be on right now, when I wake up on Saturday morning. Oh, dude, right. Like, yeah. Right. Because we post at midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So there, 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 are, there are some time frame, uh, t- you know, time zone advantages. That happened to me when Murder Most Fell came out because I got up at you know six in the morning or whatever it was, and somebody had already texted or not texted me. Somebody had messaged me. They were like, "Hey, there's a new Bob Dylan song," and I was like, "What?" Like, what? Yeah. I hadn't heard anything, so I was like, "What is this person? Ta- is this person high? What are they talking about?" And then it took like an hour to, like, "Oh, geez, yeah, there is." But obviously, that yeah. person had been hip to it for like three hours already. I was like, "Oh, wow, I didn't know that." So, okay, cool. Yeah, no, it was perfect timing. I was in bed, and uh, you know, I had my headphones on already because I was probably about to drift off. But like, all of a sudden, I get this bolt of energy, and I listened to it two two times all the way through. And then I was like, <laughs> "Okay, I'm going to give myself a break. I'll hear it again in the morning." Uh, but it was like the lights were off already. It was all. It was perfect. <laughs> Two times in a row, which means I've already stayed up a half an hour past. Exactly. Planning to, to to stay up. So okay, cool. Exactly. Well, all right. Well, that that's fantastic. Thank you for the uh, Cyprus uh, info. I really appreciate it. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, sorry. Let's talk about the Mighty Quinn or Quinn. I keep calling the song the Mighty Quinn, but the official name really is Quinn the Eskimo. Under BobDylan.com, it's under right. Q. It's one of the three Q songs of the on the Bob Dylan list here. Uh, this song has not been. Uh, has not come up much on people's uh, lists of requests. I'm kind of surprised uh, that it hasn't because it was it's such a famous song. Now, maybe because it's famous for the other version. Obviously, we'll talk about the covers, but there's the one cover by Manfred Mann that everybody knows. And maybe people, it just doesn't on people's radar. I would say this song is probably top of the list of the songs that are out there that people do not know is a Bob Dylan song, even more than all along the watchtower, even the watchtower, the most famous version is obviously Jimi Hendrix. I think the, f- the fact that that's a Dylan song has permeated the general culture. I think maybe the average person who's familiar with the song could tell you it's a Dylan song, but I feel like the mighty Quinn is at the top of that list where most people that even know the song probably don't know it's Bob Dylan. And, and he's not helping things. He's played it six times. 
Um, right. But, yeah. But, you know, and, yeah. and you know, it's not you know, and then he sticks it on the the you know, it's, it's on self self portrait. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the library. You know, and that's not a pot, and, right? And uh, and then the the greatest hits, and you know, people have that, but you know, it, it's not doesn't seem to be something that he's super proud of. Maybe that's not the right word, but he's not he's not celebrating it in a way that that everyone else that I know seems to be. Right. I mean, he's performed Watchtower live like a thousand times, you know, and right. this, as you said, this has been six. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's on, it, it has been on a number of, of compilations. You mentioned it was on greatest hits volume two. That's the, 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 um, it's that, well, the, the version on self portrait, which is the Isle of white version ended up on greatest hits volume two. Um, although supposedly it's an alternate take, maybe I don't, I'm not exactly sure. And then it, it's on the essential Bob Dylan compilation right. and then there are alternate takes on the bootleg series volume 11 the basement tapes there's another version a live version from bootleg series volume 10 another self-portrait it's on biograph as well so it's appeared on a you know a bunch of uh, compilations it's strangely enough not on the basement tapes uh so, which is strange to me you would think that one of the most famous songs would have made i mean yes it's not his most famous song but you would think a song that everyone knew would have ended up on the basement tapes where it was recorded well, well, so it, it on Spotify, it, it shows it on the on the like the official bootleg, but it's like take one. I, there might be a take two, but it's this really like slow yeah. kind of late night drunken version, yep. which is 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 lovely. Um, and you know you can really sort of feel again. It definitely feels late night uh, in a different way than the Isle of Wight one does. Um, but yeah, it's not. Maybe it's because it's from that era that it's not as as obviously a Dylan song. I'm, I'm unclear. Yeah, the, the takes from the basement tapes are like, like I, I refer to them as like the stoner takes because right. they're just everybody's building shit. You know, they're very, very slow. And then I feel like he probably heard the Manfred Mann version and much like he again did with Watchtower where post Jimi Hendrix every version he's ever done of Watchtower is electric. He's n- I don't think he's right. ever done it acoustically um, live in any form since Hendrix. Cause he's like, that's the version. And he's sort of, you know, paying tribute to Hendrix, you know, paying tribute to him. I feel like that after the Manfred Mann version became such a hit and it was number one in the UK and number 10 in the U S that he just decided, okay, it's a party song. You know, it's right. just a rave up. It's a party song. And so the version from the Island of White is that it's up-tempo. They're having a good time. You know, they're singing, whoa! You know, they're doing that kind of thing. And so that to me is like, oh, you, the, the, the sort of stoner version was left and he never returned to it because every version since then, and, you know, he did perform it live a couple of times. There are some um, versions of it on YouTube. You can see one from London 2003, one from Baltimore 2002, where it starts with the chorus where it's, it's, again, it's like a party song. And he's self-evidently enjoying playing it. The London one I really enjoy because he starts playing and I think he gets, I mean, he, he, you know, he's playing the keyboard for a little bit and you can hear the audience just kind of doing that. Oh, okay, what's he going to sing? And then three or four doing goes, everybody's building ships and boats. And people are like, whoa! Because they, they're, yeah. you know, they're realizing, holy shit, he's playing... Quinn the Eskimo, which he never plays. And he's smiling through the whole thing. And it's very charming because he's clearly having fun playing, pulling this nugget out in front of this crowd. And, and I wonder, because he hasn't played it so much, maybe it has some sort of 
special feeling to him. I mean, obviously it's tough to get into his brain, but th that idea of, um, of them being in that sort of, you know, stoner mindset in the basement, maybe like, maybe it was a really fun song for them to write. And it was a special thing that was just for that time. And, and then now he's got enough distance where he can, you know, play it and smile all the way through in a fun way. Yeah. But it's the, the, of all those versions, the, the Isle of Wight one, it, it's, it's raucous. You know, there's a funky groove that starts the thing. There's the, you know, everything's working together. He's got that Nashville skyline voice. Um, and he also does like the, my favorite thing, ad lib thing of his, of, of all is the, you know, besides is it rolling Bob is the guitar now. And then, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, that's just great. And you know, Robbie, who probably, you know, heard those kind of things in the basement, but was never going to see it live. Like he was probably like, okay, yes, I'm going to rip into this. Yeah, and they're having they're having a blast. Yeah, they're, they're having, having a, a really they're, good time. They're, yeah, they're having a really good time, and it's a fun it's a fun song. Now, um, what do you, do you do you like? There, I mean, yeah, there are multiple covers. The Grateful Dead did it. The Hollies did it. Julie London, Leon Russell. There's even more. Chris Christopherson does like kind of like a moody version for that uh, the Chimes of Freedom Amnesty International oh, right. set. Um, what do you think of the Manfred Man version? Okay, I I like it. Um, I, I do like the Hollies with the banjo that I'd even mm -hmm. like maybe a little bit more. Um, the, the, the whistles, it's just, it's great, but it, it's, it's when I've, when I've, okay. So my sons, um, like a lot of music that I put on for them, but they also like the things that they like. Um, and so sometimes I'll say, okay, well, it's daddy turn. It's daddy's <laughs> turn to put something on and they'll say, well, no, Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so so I love how they're ahead of you. That's funny. Yeah, they are. They are. And sometimes I'll be like, look, if we don't behave, I'm just going to put on some Bob Dylan videos. And they're like, no, no, no. And so they'll try to behave. But um, <laughs> the way in which I... use of Bob Dylan, Chris. That's <laughs> well, terrible. Know, here's, here's the thing. First of all, it works. Second of all, um, the way in which I figured out how to get them into some of the songs is to play them covers. And there's the really great um, gospel album that... Um, that came out, oh, what was it, like 68? There's a lovely gospel version on this album that's gospel versions of Dylan's songs that came out like in 1969 or something. And I'll put these songs on. They, they won't ask, is this Bob Dylan? How could they know? But all of a sudden, like, I'll, I'll hear them enjoying it uh, and maybe even asking, hey, can you play that one again? And mm. like, I'm not going to let them know until years later, but you, know, you got <laughs> suckered, guys, because this is the stuff that you pretended not to like, but actually, I snuck it in. I snuck it in. Wait till they graduate college or something, and then you're like, "Hey, just exactly." Let you know. So, oh, it's the it's 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 the brothers and sisters. This album, um, which is it's just called the brothers and sisters, and there's you know it's lay 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 times they are changes this gospel album. Uh, so, is it all Dylan songs? This this record? I, it's all Dylan songs. It's called Dylan's Gospel. And starts off with "Time They Are Changing," and the Mighty Quinn is song number six. They've already heard it several times, my boys. And it, it's a it's a great record. I highly recommend it. If you're trying to get someone into Dylan who doesn't like Dylan because they don't like the idea of Dylan, then you sneak in this gospel, and then you 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 give the big reveal at the end. Huh, I'm not familiar with that record at all. That's interesting. Um, it, it's sort of funny. On first blush, you would think, what really this song would be done as a co a gospel song, but you know, you you read the lyrics and you're like, well, my Quinn the Quinn is kind of like a Jesus like figure in the song. So I could see this being transposed into that kind of, that kind of sound, you know, it sort of Definitely. makes sense. To and me. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sing along. It can do some call yeah. response. 
Yeah, and absolutely. and even and and for a broader like I mean I've I've been thinking about this a lot since you and I have been emailing, but um, the he he can be a Christ-like figure, but also just like an Old Testament prophet figure, mm-hmm. and and we know you know that they, supposedly during this basement time he had this giant Bible on the table and was mm-hmm. you know going back and forth, um, and I just have this feeling that yes, he you know he he had to have known at this point you know people were probably over his garbage at points. So like he knows that people are going to be interpreting his songs. And so you can't just write something like this and think, oh, it's a, it's a nursery rhyme. Like he was quoted, you know, years later saying, um, and, and not, he can't expect that no one's going to have some sort of idea that this is either a, a Jesus figure or, a, or, or maybe at that point, even like a Timothy Leary figure or some kind of messianic prophet type that's coming through. And, you know, everyone's going to jump for joy. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this, this song um, has, um, I was talking to my dad, uh, about doing this, this podcast with you. And we were talking about, uh, how, what it means to not see nothing. <laughs> are you, are you not seeing anything? Are you not seeing nothing like a capital N, uh, like sort of nihilistic nothingness. Mm. And we got into this whole half an hour, you know, conversation, you know, a philosophical conversation about nihilism and, and are, are you, what does it mean that that you'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn when he when he finally arrives, which is probably much deeper than what it was when they were first writing this thing, which was again probably drunken, stoned in the basement. Probably somebody said, you know, the story about the um, about the, the the movie, the film that was out. Um, what is it called? Uh, the Savage Innocence. Uh, exactly, starring uh, Anthony they, Quinn Anthony playing Quinn, an Eskimo. Right. Yeah, right. So someone probably said, hey, "It's Quinn the Eskimo," and I bet something just in his head and he's like uh come on without come on with it and and all of a sudden they've got this sing-along and he jots down some lyrics and clearly on that early take he's still sort of working out the cadence of things and then it was probably just a fun thing and then i bet they were joking like haha i bet people think we're talking about jesus ah let's write another line that's like jesus and then all of a sudden you've got this great sing-along yeah i i would say so now i've not seen the savage innocence um it's a relative it's not i don't know like super hard to find but it's not uh, certainly uh, one of Anthony Quinn's more famous uh, movies, and it's not. A, I couldn't find it on any streaming services. At, 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 you know, kind of, kind of a quick pass. Um, I did find some clips of it on YouTube, and there's one clip of him where it opens with him laughing, and I was like, "Well, that that feels like that's the Mighty Quinn right there." I mean, Anthony Quinn as an actor was kind of like a bigger than life figure, and he's the. I mean, obviously Dylan. We know that Bob's a big movie guy. And, you know, you think about the movies that Bob probably saw in the 40s and the 50s growing up. Well, Anthony Quinn was a big star in the 50s, not in the 40s, but although he was in movies in the 40s, um, but he was a big star in the 50s and the 60s. So you could imagine that that would be the kind of figure that would uh, lodge itself in Bob's brain, uh, you know, if you if you saw the film. Uh, and right. probably, you know, I mean, again, you know, in an era when Anthony Quinn could play an Eskimo, you're like, nowadays, <laughs> that, that wouldn't right. pass muster nowadays. No, but okay, back then, that's when they when they did it. Um, I do, yeah, the, the lyrics, the uh, the second verse, he says, I, I like to do just like the rest. I like my sugar sweet, guarding fumes and making haste. It just ain't my cup of meat. Everybody's neat the trees, feeding pigeons out on the limb. But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, all the pigeons going to run to him. Come on without, come on within. You don't see nothing like the mighty Quinn. I love the kind of like St. Francis of Assisi sort of thing there with all the, the pigeons are going to come to him. Like he's the friend to oh, animals. 
Uh, I oh. love that. That's a great visual. I got to tell you, I love the Dylan version that he does live. It's, it is fun. But I absolutely love the Manfred Mann version. I just think the Manfred Mann version is like a perfect pop song. It's like two minutes and like 36 seconds. Uh, I love the flute, you know, I love the way it comes in, it comes in with the flute and then it crashes in. And, uh, I love the backup singers like singing, here he comes now. Like I, I listened to it a bunch of times in preparation for the show and I just, I don't get tired of it. Like, I just feel like, man, it, it's the, 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 the alchemy of making music that you could, the band, the Manfred man, the band could hear that track and transpose it into what they turned it into. I just find that amazing that this song, something so simple and goofy, I mean, cup of meat, I mean, come on, (laughs) could be so malleable that you could do both these things with it and turn it into this massive hit. And it's just like a fun party song. And Bob Dylan, of course, not known for party songs. But I mean, I just, I love the Manfred Man version. I just think it's, I like it more than the Dylan one. I just think they nailed it with it with that. It's just to me, it's it's I don't get tired of it. Every time I hear it, and, I'm like, oh man, this is so fun to hear again. And and you know, the the version that they probably got was that you know that basement tape, you know, yeah. really kind of slow thing yep. that yeah they, yep. they, they 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 tapped a magic wand onto. Yeah. Um, but I do. I also yeah the the Saint Francis of Assisi, but also um, so in the same era uh, at, at of the basement tapes. Um, there's the going to Acapulco, right. where he's, um, you know, it's not a bad way to make a living and everyone's got to eat. Uh, I'm just the same as any old man when it comes to scratching for my meat. Um, <laughs> so here's meat coming up again. You know, it ain't my cup of meat. And so I, I think that he was probably thinking about all these things. And, and my, my, the album I've been listening to more than anything recently is John Wesley Harding. And so the idea for me that this song is happening at the same time that those songs are also happening in his brain, who knows when they were written. Um, but it's the same time frame. Yep. That kind of, yes, slow stoner party song that later becomes a party song, party song, while those other very serious songs are happening is, is just what's going on in this guy's brain at this time. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Because so much of John Wesley Harding seems kind of deadly serious. Uh, you know, like I pity the poor immigrant or, you know, or Drifters Escape and all along the Watchtower. They seem spooky. And yet, yet they were presumably written all around the same time. Uh, right. I mean, he famously apparently asked Robbie Robertson and some members of the band to add some electric embellishment to John Wesley Harding and uh, Robertson heard it and said, they're good the way they are. Uh, you know, I mean, so, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's amazing that this could all be swimming in his head at the same time. I I always found the cup of meat line to just be just purposely a jumble, you know, right. like just, it's just a weird, like a cup of meat who eats meat like that. Like, what do you, and that's sort of how it is. I, this, in a weird way, this song reminds me of um, "I Want You" from Blonde on Blonde, where the car, the the verses are just kind of uh, you know abstract gibber- gibberish, you know, uh, the drunk, drunken undertaker size, you know, but then the chorus is straightforward. "I want you, I want you so bad." Like it's the love that he has for this person is cutting through all the chaos that's going on in his life. And that to me is what this is. It's like, there's this just nuttiness. It's all nonsensical kind of stuff. And Quinn the Eskimo is this figure who's going to come in and sort of make everything better 
and he just he cuts through all, and that's 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 sort of how I hear it in my head. I, I mean, I'm right there with you, and, and also again thinking about this time where he's taking a break from all the craziness and what's expected of him. Like, right. is, is he the is he the Eskimo that's gonna gonna bring all the joy? Um, is his is his absence the thing that's making everybody in despair? <laughs> um, you know, maybe they maybe that maybe it was the sort of thing where like you know when he arrives at at at, at Big Pink. Is everybody like, hey, Bob, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Everyone puts their glass in the air when he arrives and he gets this nice feeling from his buddies that he, he, he's missed for a while or he hasn't really, he doesn't have that in his life at this point because he's, you know, one of the most famous people in the world. And, but he gets this big welcome when he gets there. I bet, you know, there's something, something going on in his brain about that. But also, I, I agree. I think there's some gibberish, gibberish, gibberish. Let's write some things that are kind of fun or funny and just get to the chorus again. Because yeah, the chorus is just, it's so catchy and it's, a, it's just an instant sing-along uh, that it, it kind of doesn't really matter what you're going to say as long as you get to the chorus. Yes, right, um, right. Yeah, it's all just leading to, those, to that refrain. Totally. Right. Although um, I got to say, I bet the man had a smile on his face when he, when he writes down, just tell me where it hurts you, honey, and I'll tell you who to call. Because <laughs> that's just such a good line. There is a cat's meow and a cow's moo. I can recite them. Yeah. Bob Dylan, if he really wanted to, could could comp could could put together a compilation of like children's songs. You know, they weren't made for children, but he really could. Like this, this could totally work as a nursery rhyme for kids, and it would. It's fine. You know, it would it would work in that context. So you know, he's asked. Okay, so in doing some some you know, half-assed internet research around this. So Cameron Crowe, uh, when interviewing him for like the original basement tape version, um, when, when it comes out in the box set, he asked him about it. And the quote from Dylan is, Quinn the Eskimo, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was about. I guess it was some kind of nursery rhyme. There you go. So maybe that's what was on his mind. Who knows? I mean, there were yeah. kids around, right? Yeah, right, right. He had a whole bunch of little kids going on. I mean, the the cat's meow and a cow's moo. It's like that makes me think of that toy that you had as a kid, right. where you pulled right. the string and it, you know, it played the animal sound, whatever one it got to. Uh, that's you know, again, that's the sort of what I hear. And he says, I, I do love that. Tell me where it hurts you, honey, and I'll tell you who to call. Nobody can get Such no sleep. Life. There's someone on everyone's toes, which again sounds like you know, like oppression. There's someone right. kind of bringing everybody down. But when Quinn the Eskimo gets here, everybody's going to want to doze. Everybody's going to take a nap. Everybody's going to relax. Come on without, come on within. You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. Now, regarding that last line, you mentioned the the double negative. You'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. And while I didn't go down the existentialist <laughs> Good <for> Nietzschean, you. <laughs> Nietzschean rabbit hole that you and your dad went down, I always look at it as the people, the people that populate this song are not uh, super book smart or book like, like educated. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're, they're simple people and they speak in double negatives because they haven't been told not to speak in double negatives. And then it's, it's so to me, it's, it's getting across a kind of earthiness of the language of you'll not see nothing, even though grammatically that's not correct. It just lends a certain like, okay, these aren't book people. Uh, these are just kind of regular people. maybe, Eskimos, you know, that are not, that are not, you know, and that's just how they talk. And that to me, it just, it, it puts the song in a certain frame of mind that like, Oh, you'll not see nothing like the mighty Quinn. So that again, that's, or, or, or the very people that, you know, Jesus is preaching to not the educated, right. right. You know, the, the prophets aren't only meeting with the Kings. They're going and talking to the regular folks and letting them know like, Hey, get your act together or you know, the Lord's going to be upset. 
and they're the ones that are going to, you know, you'll not see nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, live wise, it's so interesting. He played it at the Isle of Wight and then not again until 2002. Uh, that's a big, it's a big gap, big gap, big gap. And again, it's like, I, I think Bob Dylan works on a, on a time frame that most humans uh, are not able to operate under. You know what I mean? Like we don't think of careers having this longevity that you can right. go 30 years in between song plays. And yet to Bob, it's, it's, you know, as he sort of talked about, I think in the interviews he did for, um, maybe the one interview I think he did to promote rough and rowdy ways where it's like all the characters in his songs are all living at the same time. They're all, you know, Al Pacino, Leon Russell, Liberace. They're all, you know, general Sherman Patton. They're all the same. They're everybody. All the ghosts are all around all at the same time. And so to him, the mighty Quinn, while maybe to a regular person, or even someone like a musician like yourself, like playing a song they haven't played in 30 years could seem daunting. But to him, it's like, oh, I'll just dig this out. Even though it has right. been five presidential administrations since I sang, yeah. sang, it, the, sang it the last time. Um, now he does mention it in Chronicles um, because, of course, there is a movie called The Mighty <sighs> right, Quinn yeah. with Denzel Washington. Now, I've never seen that movie. Have you? I have not. I, I saw the trailer when I was looking through stuff about this. Um, he's like, it's like Jamaican and yeah, uh, it's like a Jamaican murder mystery kind of, thing. right. Um, I have never seen mystery. it. I've, I've always wanted to see it. Uh, but I, I, even just for the title, I was like, Oh geez, what's that? But I've never seen, it. but Bob, this is what he says about it in, in, in Chronicles. He says on the way back to the house, I passed the local movie theater on Pritiana street where the mighty Quinn was showing years earlier. I had written a song called the mighty Quinn. I love the way he says it. Like, we don't know that. You know, right. years earlier, I'd written, yeah, Bob, anyone reading Chronicles knows you did, uh, which was a hit in England, and I wondered what the movie was about. Eventually, I'd sneak off and go there to see it. It was a mystery, suspense, Jamaican thriller with Denzel Washington as the mighty Xavier Quinn as a detective who solves crimes. Funny, that's just the way I imagined him when I wrote the song, The Mighty Quinn, Denzel Washington. <laughs> and and when, I, when, I, when, I, when I hear that, that's the theme time radio hour dad joke, deadpan voice. Yep. Yep. And it's just perfect. Of course, <laughs> that's just, what you thought, buddy. It's just the way I imagined it when I wrote the song. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it's just that kind of like, come on, Bob. What do you, again, you have to wonder, like, how, like, does he even get informed of these things? Or, like, is it that chance that he just is in a movie theater and then he's like, oh, look, there's a movie named after one of my songs. I don't know. Because I don't know. I guess they, they probably, I, I should have looked it up. They probably cover the song in the movie, I would imagine. He, is that right? And I mean, how could there's they not? a clip? So right, and and it's like a calypso version, right? There. Um, so there, at there the very least, scene, his yeah. office got a check. Right. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there you go. I mean, again, how could you? How could you not? Now, again, I have not seen the movie. If anybody out there listening has seen it, and there's a any more of a direct connection to the song in some ways, uh, let us know in the in the comments or on on Twitter. But I mean, yeah, I just. Yeah. Listening to an, listening to Bob's versions again, and listening to the Manfred Mann version on repeat a bunch of times, it it's just it's just like a such a joyful song, you know. It's just so fun, and again, it's not something Dylan is necessarily known for, but it's it's just such a goofy thing. And I mean, who wouldn't like you were saying? I like the idea that you you put across of like that Bob is talking about himself, that it's people made a big deal when he would show up. 
and that's the right. f- good feeling you're trying to put across. That's a one. Imagine feeling like that. That would be a wonderful feeling if you're lucky enough to ever get that in your life. That people would react Absolutely. like that. And what a great and the the skill he has to be able to convey that via song. That kind of just joy and happiness and celebratory mood is it's extraordinary. Well, he's also you know he's also a dad at this point, and you know maybe kids you know, are reacting that way when he comes home or, you know, your dog is really excited when you get home. And so all these things might be connected in his brain. Um, but you know, is it, it, is it about that? Is it about nothing that, you know, this, this sort of high, low with, with, with a lot of his songs, um, and the ability to take a song like this, which, you know, has a cat's meow and a cow's moo. (laughs) Can you read nihilism into it? Um, you know, you're not going to find too many other musicians that are going to bring that, that kind of conversation out. Um, but also like, it, again, it's also happening at the same time as the Paul is dead stuff is happening and which had to have been in his consciousness at some point. Do you know this whole Paul is dead stuff? Oh, sure. Sure. Right. So, you know, he's probably thinking like, ah, I'll, I'll put some, some cryptic stuff in a song and maybe someone will, you know, have fun with that. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's what's, you know, he's just you know, going to mess with people. Like, you know, John throws in some of the things to mess with the Paul is dead people. Maybe he's like, oh, I'll just mess with the fans this way. Uh, but have you heard the, uh, have you seen the Beatles film Get Back? Uh, I've seen part of it. Okay. So for some reason, um, it's not the full version that they have. You can find now on YouTube. If you type in the Beatles, get uh, Beatles, uh, Quinn the Eskimo, it's like a minute and a half. And it's this wonderful jam. Because George is kind of singing it because, you know, he's just been back from the basement hanging out with Dylan. And, you know, there was this that people have this idea that maybe the Let It Be sessions were their attempt to kind of do something similar. Yeah. But, you know, you do hear like four Dylan songs in the first 45 minutes of the Get Back film, including Mm -hmm. snippets of of this. But you, you get like a minute and a half version on YouTube and like Paul is into it. He's got a big come on without and it's just, it's got this nice, cool little jam. You want it to go on forever, but it's just a quick little minute. But that's like, that's one of my favorite covers. And it's not even the full cover. And they're kind of just messing around. And George, you can barely hear in the background. But that and the, and, and the, I do like the Hollies from 69 with the banjo. But I, I also am a big Grateful Dead fan. And this was a thing that, that they played a bunch. And it was the kind of thing that was an easy sing-along. Mm-hmm. And also Garcia is this kind of figure that when he comes around, everyone's going to jump for joy. <laughs> So it's got all these layers, and, and which is the same for, for Trey from Fish. And so when Fish has played this in a number of times, like everyone is quite excited. Maybe Fish, the band themselves, are the Eskimo that's coming to get everybody excited. Maybe, maybe the music itself is the thing that is making everybody excited. So what kind of other silly song is going to bring these kind of interpretations out? Yeah. Have you ever, now I know, you know you're, in a, you're in a band. Have you ever played this song? So... Um, Yes and no. Uh, I played it. So what, right when I got to Cyprus, um, uh, just before COVID hit, I had a handful of songs that I recorded in a studio, um, just, just my guitar part, and then COVID hit. So instead of like kind of reaching out and trying to find some people to play music with, I kind of reached back to friends from Memphis. And uh, we had moved here from Oakland, California, where I had this band, and asked some, some friends from that to throw some, some uh, parts my way, and then it got mixed up. Uh, and so I was playing it uh, a bit then, uh, but then I ended up dropping it because I thought, okay, I can only play one Dylan cover if I'm going to play shows at any point in time. 
and She Belongs to Me is my all-time favorite Dylan song. Ah, okay. And it is my all-time favorite love song because he doesn't mention the word. And, uh, you know, there's no chorus. There's, it's like, this is how I want to write songs. I don't want to have to deal with a chorus. I want to just write some good stuff that somebody wishes someone had said about them. <laughs> and, and so I decided, okay, I'm going to shelve Quinn the Eskimo because it's not hard. And I'm not some kind of amazingly skilled guitar player. So I got to find the easy stuff. And She Belongs to Me was a little easier. So I shelved. I shelved the Eskimo, but maybe it'll make a comeback. Who knows? What uh, you now have you have you done any others other than than she belongs to me? Have you done any in a in, with your band and like in a live setting? So last night my band played a show um, at this place called Blue um, Dogs, and they we we decided a couple weeks ago to add um, all on the Watchtower, um, which I love very much, but it is not my all time favorite Bob Dylan song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but I didn't want to push back because here, uh, most of the people here, um, they love Greek music. Fair enough. We're, we're in Greek music territory. Uh, but so, so you have to throw some covers that people are going to know. And this is one that we kind of in talking to people, a couple of guys in my band are from here and they're tapped into the music scene and they thought, okay, some people play Watchtower. It's not the most popular cover. Like, uh, everyone plays Smoke on the Water and I'm not going to play that. So we, we decided to go for Watchtower, but I learned Watchtower not from Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix, but from the Dave Matthews Band. Oh, do they cover um, it? I don't think I knew that. They do a, a wonderful cover, and it's like it's very dynamic. There's a lot of start, stop, slow, then big build, and he kind of does a big growl, and then it kind of it, it's it's wonderful. Definitely check out Dave Matthews Band playing all on the Watchtower. I highly recommend it. But that's the version. Uh, from I think the the first sort of EP that they put out that got stuck into my brain, and so we played it last night, and I did my best Dave Matthews impression, which I kind of <laughs> wanted to do since I was fifteen, sixteen years old, and of course it blew my voice out. So <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna do a Dave Matthews cover of All on the Watchtower, you need to put in the second set. <laughs> right, right near the end. I say okay. Well, that's, I did not know about the, the, uh, I, I, I guess I didn't get that far into get back because I don't, I didn't get to the part where they start singing Quinn the Eskimo. So I didn't know, but, no, know about film, that at all. Is, so I went back and, and I was, cause I've, I have watched it twice all the way through, but it's been wow. late at night and, and yeah, I know. Uh, I, I, when the kids go to bed is when I, I'll put some things on and stay up way too late. But, um, I did go back through and I'm looking and I'm trying to find, it, I'm trying to find it. And in the film itself, it's only like five or six seconds. Okay, maybe I did. Maybe I did get to so that part. It, and it just maybe, went by so fast. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, it went by too fast. So when you, if you want to hear the version I'm talking about, it's on YouTube, and it is phenomenal. Highly recommend it. That's in that. Isn't it amazing? I mean, well, as we're wrapping up here, I don't want to get too far off the the beam, but like, isn't it amazing that like, considering how much cross pollination there was between them and Bob, that there was never a collaboration, that they never, and there is no like full Beatles cover of a Dylan song, like. It, it, you know, like talk about like the nexus of popular music and yet it never it's quite happened. Like, right. And, and you, you know, you, you, there's that really awkward, uh, you know, uh, eat the document scene with him and John Lennon where right. they, you know, he's, he keeps threatening to throw up and you could tell like they're frenemies. Yeah. Like they have <laughs> right. this, they have this huge respect for each other, but they they can't possibly be friends. <laughs> and, and, and they're, he's not going to play a Beatles song, you know, and, and they're not going to play it. Like you can't, it's like them. It's like the Beatles playing the Rolling Stones song. So it's just not going to happen. Until, of course, you know, there's that famous line about how during the divorce, George got Bob. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Which just I works just, out so well. It's just like you would just, I would always just think that like, like even as like a bootleg, like you found out, oh, you know, at the end of the night after they were working on Sergeant Pepper for the 130th day in a row, they just jammed on, you know, Times Era Change. You know, just some little right. goofy thing. Well, that they, was what was so lovely about the beginning. Like the first, again, it's the first half an hour of Get Back. You see like three different Dylan songs. Because it was I remember in they sing, what's, what's the other one that he's singing, Harrison singing? I remember I caught one of them. Uh, uh, Mama, You've Been On My Mind. Which Yes, that's the one. That's know, what I'm thinking of. Yeah, he yeah, he yeah, basically so. made his own, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, you know, clearly he's enamored and, you know, treated like an equal when he goes uh, to, 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 to upstate New York during that time. And then, of yep. course, he comes back and there's the whole drama there. But this isn't a Beatles podcast. <laughs> George Harrison's like, I've been hanging out with Bob Dylan. I don't need you losers. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, I've just one, been writing songs with the, you know, the man. Greatest living songwriter of the second half of the 20th yeah. century. No big deal. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, no, I'll just get one song on this record. That's fine. I, yeah, I guess I suck. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, well, well, you know, Chris, I mean, thank you for, for pitching this. Cause like, I just, I love this song. It's just so fun. And, uh, I, it was great great uh great fun to to go back and revisit it and listen to kind of the other versions and again just indulge myself on the man for man one because i just love it by the way there is doing research for this um there is a clip again i'm i don't want to get too far off uh, the subject matter but there is a clip you can find it on youtube of manford man i guess at that time they had changed their name to like the the manford earth band or whatever their like second version of their band was and it's them doing it live in australia in 1972 and the lead singer says uh he says something like and he's clearly not interested in being there and he says something like uh this is uh we recorded this back when uh back when i was a pop star and he just looks like he hates his life and it's the kind of clip that you think they would play on vh1 behind the scenes manford man right before things got really bad because it just looks like these are guys who just don't want to do this anymore <laughs> so it's absolutely right like, and then they like they, they turn into black and white and do slow-mo and you're yeah like, That's yeah when the drugs came in. yeah exactly it's like you know after the commercial things get bad it just it's you just look at like oh boy being a musician sometimes i guess is not super fun because they don't look like they're having a good time at all. They're just like, oh, I guess we'll just play Quinn the Eskimo, guys. All right, okay. Come on without... You know, they just look so right. miserable. It's such a shame. But, uh, but man, yeah, this is, this is such a, a fun song. So, well, Chris, thank you so much for, for reaching out and thank you for, for pitching me this song. This was just super fun to, to talk to you. So thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. No problem. So, of course, before we sign off, I got to ask you the standard exit uh, interview question. Uh, if there's any Bob Dylan album sessions you could sit in and sit in on, Chris, what would they be? What would it be? Okay, uh, I've thought about this since you started uh, th- with this question. Uh, I guess a couple months ago when you had to change it from when he started playing music again live. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 yes, I get the whole basement tapes. You get the longevity. Um, but I'm I'm going to go with John Wesley Harding because it's the one that I know so so little about. Um, you know, I, I've read, I mean, I've read, there's that book, Simple Twist of Fate about, uh, the recording of Blood on the Tracks. Um, I, you know, I've read the book about Blonde on Blonde and they all, they're all really interesting. They're all really great. But if you are sitting in on Blonde on Blonde, like you're waiting around for hours <laughs> while these guys are playing ping pong and he's writing the songs. Uh, but John Wesley Harding, it's three, three sessions 
13 hours. And as you know from the from, from the bootleg series, like there are not too many outtakes. Nope. And so if you're witnessing the recording of John Wesley Harding, you see a guy who comes in. There's that quote from uh, Charlie McCoy. He was like, this was a different dude than was here just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. He's got his hair is different. He's wearing glasses. His voice is different. Every, it's like a totally different guy. And he and he, he had these songs ready. Where, when did he write them? Who knows? You know, the band knew nothing of these songs. So he secretly, after partying with the band and writing things like Quinn the Eskimo and Go in Acapulco, he then goes and writes these very serious songs. He shows to nobody. He then shows up and three sessions, boom, done. Again, like demos such that, like you said, he says to the band, some of the guys from the band, like, do you want to add some things? But no, he just, he did it. So like you are really just watching a proper master who is feeling quite at home in the studio in in his craft and he just he just busts it out and i would like to see that that's a great answer that is again that is one of the most there is comparatively very little known about those sessions uh when you talk about the other albums as you said like blonde on blonde everybody knows how torturous it was to get that down but uh yeah john wesling harding seems that he went in did it and left and uh, in a lot of ways, he kind of never got back to that. I mean, maybe now, maybe the, the more recent albums, we don't know much about the recent albums, but it seems like at least then he was able to just zip in and get these things. I, again, my favorite story about that is when I think Harrison, again, George Harrison heard the record and he was talking to Charlie McCoy and Harrison said, good Lord, how long did it take you to do that record? Because it sounds like it probably took forever. And McCoy was like, yeah, a couple of days. <laughs> It's like, yeah, a couple right. hours, a couple days. And Harrison's like, holy couple shit. Hours. You know, so, 13 hours. 13 hours. So, yeah, uh, that's that's an absolutely marvelous answer. So, and you know, it's funny. You, you said about being, you don't want to be on Blonde on Blonde because you're bored. I, it, that, ab, that adds a uh, dimension to this question I had not thought of where I'm like, well, when I'm asking this question, am I asking if people are time travelers? Because like, are you... If you're at the Blonde on Blonde sessions, are you like in 1966? Because, yeah, there's not a lot to do. You know what right. I mean? Or, or like, are you a time travel and you have your phone? You know, <laughs> like, so you can like, you know, you can sit, although there's no internet tower. There's no cell phone towers in 1966. Your phone wouldn't work right. anyway. So, okay, never mind. Or, or are you interacting with them? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, butterfly effect and all of a sudden, you know. You, right, you yeah. Cause. So I would just sit quiet. I'm watching. I'm, I'm floating up above. Um, I'm, you know, bird's eye view of the whole thing. I'm not interacting with anybody. I'm right. just watching. Because Chris That's Bloomfield interfered with the John Wesley Harding sessions, the album never came out, and Bob never did this and that, and he ended up joining the Grateful Dead in 1987 and stayed a right. member. Yeah, Phil Lesh was like, yes, actually, let's vote him in. <laughs> and, we, and we never get rough and rowdy ways for some reason. I don't right. know how it And, and Springsteen, Springsteen doesn't, you know, do his thing where he, you know, because he keeps saying that if if he only ever did John Wesley Harding, that would be enough. Um, so yeah, I, I caused the demise of, of of American music. Damn it, Chris! Jeez. Uh, well, on that on that note, uh, where can people find you out on the internet? All right, to re- to cause the resurgence of of American music. Um, the uh, so my band is called Bloomfields, and uh, we have a website. Uh, it's Bloomfields.cy, which is the the, the Cypress.com. Uh, it's on Facebook. Uh, we're on Instagram and all the, all the other places. Um, 
and uh, yeah, check us out. We we play sort of a, a Americana progressive folk stuff. I, I don't even know how to call it, but it's fun. It's very Dylan-esque. No labels, you know. Just it just it's just music. It just says what it is. So, oh, no uh, just music. Well, thank you so much for being here, Chris. I really appreciate it. It was, a, it was a blast of a conversation. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. So, of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of Pod Dylan on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast like these fine folks did. Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein. Thanks so much, guys. So that's going to do it. We will see you later. Bye. <laughs> the sled is now ready. <laughs> Well, Annie Nook, who do you like better, Imina or Asiak? Our decision is difficult. This man likes both women. Why choose? You must make up your mind. You'll never get a wife. (laughs) 